Oh, no, you're fine. Go ahead. It's fine. Well, if you're not already there, turn to 1 John chapter 3. We are almost done with 1 John. We have a couple more chapters to go. Um, We'll end on Christmas Day, actually. And then uh, Tyler Loniker will preach a surprise message for us on January 1. Hopefully it's from the Bible. Um, And then we will jump back into our... Our study of Genesis, we've been doing, we broke it up into three parts, and so we're on part three, the last part of Genesis, so we'll start that on January the 8th, um, but right now we're still in First John, First John chapter three. Let me pray for us, and then we will uh, dive in. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, give us minds to understand, and give us hearts to receive what you have to show us from your holy word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I mentioned this when, we, when I first started preaching through 1 John, that, there's a, there's, that the, the letter of 1 John is broken up into two parts. Um, and so, so there's a natural break that occurs here in verse 11 to signal the second half of this letter. And while the situation with the heretics, the false teachers uh, that, that, are, that are seeking to infiltrate the church here and, uh, and to John's readers uh, is still very real... John's rebuke of them, or just John's uh, using their bad theology as a springboard to teach good theology, kind of fades into the background in the second part of this letter. So today's passage is the second time of three that John takes up and applies the supreme test of love, and each time he does this, the test of this love is more searching. John delves deeper here because the subject of love is not some sappy, happy, watered-down idea, but love is actually the driving force of all of the Bible. It's the overarching message of the story of God. It's the defining factor of the Christian life. If God did not cast down his divine love upon us, we would be a people without hope. And if, we, and if we don't, in response to this love, love others in return, John says plainly, we cannot love God. So this we must take very seriously. So chapter 3, as we saw last week, began with a reminder of who we are as the church of Jesus Christ, that we are God's children meaning that we are a people who have been chosen by our Heavenly Father to be his sons and daughters. And this isn't an excuse to live an excuse to live passively, but to allow the love of our Heavenly Father to change us, to transform us. That because of the love he has showed to us in Christ, we are even allowed to be called children of God. That's a great privilege. And this in turn answers the question for us, How should we live as God's children? And so for the rest of the letter, John's letter, he sets out to answer this question for the church. And he does this by swimming deeply in the reality of God's divine love for his people. So much so that over the next few weeks, you are going to feel like he's being very repetitive. But I would encourage you to think uh, with, a, with a more consistent biblical theology here, meaning that the word of God is without error 
And what's written on these pages are things we need to hear and must hear, even if they sound repetitive. There's a point in all that. We need to hear the message of God's love towards sinners over and over again, lest we forget. Because it's the divine love of God that consumes and transforms all of life. So we'll look at, that, at what this divine love looks like this morning in our text in three ways. One is that divine love is from the beginning, and these points are on your worship guide if you got one of those. Divine love is from the beginning. Two, divine love is hospitable. And three, divine love assures us of our hope. So divine love is from the beginning, it's hospitable, and it assures us of our hope. So divine love is from the beginning. Look at verse 11 again. John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John's use of this phrase, the message, which can be translated gospel, is the same word that he uses at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, This message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that him there is Jesus, uh, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if you take both of these instances of this use of this phrase, John is communicating the full gospel message is both light, that God is light, and that God is love. It's the full gospel message. So he has taught that God is light in the first part of this letter and now moves into the second part of this letter with the message that God is love. So we could boil it down with a phrase that says something like this, that as we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we will in turn love as Jesus loved. So if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we will in turn love as Jesus loved. Which brings us to the second part of verse 11. For the eighth time in this letter, John uses this phrase in one way or the other, in the beginning or from the beginning. He uses it over and over again. He's very fond of this. It's a key phrase in his letter, and he actually uses it in in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 of his gospel uh, to show that that Jesus was in the beginning. You're probably familiar with this verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So by using Genesis language in our text, is to say from the beginning of your belief, this message, this message of the gospel, this message of Jesus Christ has not changed. And this is where your faith started, and this is where your faith ends. So this is John's way, again, of of, of sort of countering the argument of false teachers who say that that true enlightenment that that, uh, comes from the new knowledge that they themselves somehow claim to have. And John says, with the use of this simple phrase in the beginning, no. As if to say, I don't care what you are hearing outside the walls of the church. The gospel message has not changed, and it will not change. There has never been another gospel message, and there never will be another gospel message. This is it. 
In chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, this is what John says very explicitly. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. This isn't a new teaching, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and true in Jesus and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So just as way of, of application here, just for you to be aware of, there are still people today who try to bring a new teaching to the church. And I'm just saying, just as a warning, if that new teaching doesn't line up with the old commandments of God's word, do not listen to it. Run from it. And this is what John is saying here to his readers. You see, John is confident that his readers will be safe in their faith if they hold fast to this message that they heard from the beginning. Because all, all one has to do when doubts arise or, or you're faced with something you've never heard of or, or you're, you, maybe you're encountering persecution or some sort of su- suffering, it is to go back to the beginning and inquire what the apostles originally taught and what their first converts had heard. That is the original message of the gospel. For example, turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. There's a couple of things I want us to see here in reference to the, the, ne- the message that you have heard from the beginning. And this is for us because we're looking back uh, hundreds of years um, in, when we look in the, in the scriptures. So this is way before our time. But the first thing in, in Acts chapter 2, which is a very famous chapter, and if you've been in the church for very long, you will know of this, but it's, it's the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to Pentecost, okay? And so the first thing is this happens. The Spirit comes just as Jesus said it would. When I go up into, when I uh, ascend into heaven, uh, I will send the Helper and He will come and be with you. And the Helper is the Holy Spirit. Now, this was such a strange experience that some of the bystanders around them, when they saw the Holy Spirit come upon the church, they assumed that they were drunk. This is the great assumption here. Some of them were, were, were wondering and, and thinking like, wow, this is, this is, this is strange. It's not something we've never seen before. Um, others thought, well, I think they're just, they've had a little too much wine uh, this early in the morning, and this is why they are acting the way they're acting. But there's really no changes that really take place outside of the Spirit coming to the church. There's no outside, people outside the church changing because of that beyond wonder and speculation. Okay, and then that's, that all happens there at the very beginning. But then the second thing that happens from verse 14 of, of Acts 2 to verse 40 is pre, uh, Peter pe- preaches his very first su- sermon from the Bible. Okay, he quotes Old Testament texts. He, he kind of exposits them and explains what they mean concerning Jesus And he clearly shares the gospel message with this intrigued and doubtful crowd. And the results of the message are found in Acts 2, 41 through 47. Let me just read this for you. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I use that as an example because the same message that John's readers, John's readers heard is the same message that Peter preached at Pentecost where 3,000 plus souls were added to the kingdom of God. This was the original message. This was the message that they had heard from the beginning. And this is the same message that we proclaim and believe today. And all we have to do, if there's ever any doubt, all we have to do is look back at what they believed in places like this to understand the message of the gospel. Peter didn't have any, any smoke and lights. He didn't have to say anything that was different from the Old Testament. Peter just shared the gospel from the Bible. And people came to faith in him, in Jesus, not Peter. So that's the first use of in the beginning. You turn back to, to 1 John. The second use of the phrase is to purposefully point back to the actual beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's to, it's to set forth this divine love is not something we just came up with. It didn't just arrive in the New Testament, but it's something that has been taking place from the very beginning of time. This love that we experience from God, this divine love, we could also say is an ancient love. It's an everlasting love. It's a love that, that far outweighs any definition we could try to place upon it. It's a love, if you think about it, that is cultivated within the Trinity, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's given to us in Christ, and this love calls us to respond, all of us, to respond to it in repentance and faith. And even after that, to love in just the same way. So what shape does divine love look like in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment life? Well, in our second point this morning, John is saying that it's a hospitable love. Look at verses 12 through 18. John says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brothers. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, 
Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So I use the word hospitality here, even though it is not explicitly used in the text, because I believe it's a word that communicates both the love of the God we serve, as well as the love we are called to practice as the church. Uh, uh, Worship director Isaac Wardell, he's a worship director at a church in Virginia, um, speaking of the church says these words, which I think are really helpful. He says, of all our particular practices, liturgies, and beliefs, the thing that marks us the most is our welcome, our hospitality. Well, why is that? Well, true hospitality is not hostile, it's not abrasive, and it's not standoffish. It's embracing, it's a, it's a moving into the pain and suffering of others, it's, it's messy, it's empathetic. It's the practice of divine love. And so John teaches us what what this looks like by giving us two examples in verses 12 through 18. So the first example that he gives us in in 12 through 15 is uh, what I'm calling the tragic example of Cain. So again, John pulls from the very beginning of of the message, of the gospel message, uh, to use a dark example of how not to love, how not to be hospitable. So most of us know the story from Genesis chapter 4. It's the tale of two brothers. One is uh, named Abel, is seeking to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength because he believes in the future hope of Genesis 3.15 that God gives to Adam and Eve, God gives to his parents, and says the Messiah is coming, the snake crusher is coming. And Abel believes that, and he worships the God who promises him that. The other brother, Cain, continues to live in the disobedience his parents modeled at the fall. He continues to believe the lie that Satan told his parents in Genesis 3 that that God doesn't have your best intentions in mind, that that he's holding back from you, that he's not giving you all that you want, and ultimately believing God doesn't really love you, Cain. And so he resents his brother because because of his brother's righteousness. And all of this drives him to murder his brother. So Cain, John tells us in verse 12, was the first antichrist. He was the first child of the devil. Uh, And essentially what it boils down to is Cain is the prototype of the world. Still to this day, he continues to be the prototype of the world. So, So we should not be surprised if the world hates us like Cain hated his brother Abel. And then in verse 13, John gives a very short uh, teaching caveat to say, as you live unto God, as you live a righteous life, you will provoke scorn from this world. Look at what happened to Abel. He wasn't poking and prodding his brother, you know, on social media or trying to get into an argument with him um, just out of spite because he felt like he was better than him. All he was doing was simply doing what God had called him to do, which was to worship. And he provoked his brother to anger. So we could say that that Abel is the first martyr of the church. He was hated because of what he believed and how he lived according to those beliefs to the point of death. 
So John seized on this opportunity to say, don't be surprised when this happens to you. And the reason he can say this is because Jesus said it would happen. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is Jesus speaking. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now this is definitely true for those outside of the church, but it's even more painful when it happens within the church. And this is what's happening to John's readers. One commentator wrote this. He says, The passions that fueled Cain's jealousy and hatred are now fueling those opposed to Christians. And this includes not simply non-Christians outside the church, but also Christians, brothers and sisters, who reside within the church. Now, as a pastor, I wish that I could say that we have somehow evolved from this reality and that this wasn't true anymore, that we have gotten out of this and now we're, we love each other well and we never screw up in this within the church. But it's a sad reality that this continues to exist in the church. It's happened to me and I know it's happened to some of you that you've experienced it from the church that some of those who who possibly hate you and those whom you hate are those found in the seats around you on a Sunday. Those those that we greet with peace when we do the passing of the peace. Those that we uh, confess sin alongside of. Those that we come and feast at the Lord's table with. I pray that we would not let this be at, at Christ the King Church that we would fight against the spirit of Cain, which is quite simply the spirit of the Antichrist that seeks to slaughter one another in this fellowship. And this is what the enemy will do more often than anything else. He will try to divide and separate the church. C.S. Lewis, if you've read uh, his screw tape letters, you probably know this, this illustration that I'm going to share from his book, but uh, the screw tape letters is a fictional tale, uh, a fictional correspondence, but it is hauntingly accurate, I feel like. I feel like, like C.S. Lewis like, found the mail of two demons, and then he wrote a book around it because it's so accurate. But it's, it's a correspondence that he wrote uh, between two demons named screw tape who is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, as they discuss how they can get their patient uh, to walk away from his newly found faith. And it's not a tactic that you would expect. Let me just read a short passage uh, from this book in the Screwtape Letters. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. This is, there is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, the enemy being God, are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, this is quite invisible to these humans. 
All your patient sees is the half-finished sham, gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. You see, Wormwood's strategy is not to involve the patient in some uh, egregious scandal or sin. No, rather, it is simply to make him annoyed by those who sit in the pew with him, to turn him against the saints, to divide the body over something very silly and stupid. Well, it's the exact thing that John is fighting so hard for here in our text amongst the church. Love for each other. In verses 14 through 15, John pushes this to the point of assessing whether or not one walking with Christ or or, or walks opposed to Christ. This, This is the test that he has. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know this? Because we love our brothers. In his comments on this verse, the late John Stott says, the authentic followers of Jesus Christ who have passed from death to life hunger for Christian fellowship. They do not give up meeting together, as Hebrews 10.25 talks about, but delight to worship and pray together and to walk together on spiritual to- or talk together on spiritual topics while their personal relationships with each other are marked by unselfish and caring love. Is this what marks you, Christian? Do you hunger for Christian fellowship? Do you delight in worshiping and praying and gathering with the saints each week? Do you go out of your way to make this gathering and other gatherings with believers a priority in your week? Do you you move your schedule around for it from week to week? Well, John is saying we are to love the family God has placed us in. This family, the family that we call the church. And there is no other explanation for this type of love for each other other than the example of Christ's love for us in all of our quirks, annoyances, selfishness, and most importantly, in our sin. Christ Jesus came and died for us. That God himself crossed the threshold of his heavenly kingdom to enter into our brokenness via the incarnation. 
And this should compel us to follow him as we move towards our brothers and sisters in love. Which leads to John's next example. Because while Cain's and even our example of love is tragic, Jesus' example of love is superior. Jesus offers a completely different model of what it means to live life together as the body of Christ. The presence of divine love amongst us is not merely an example for us to follow, but a genuine offering of one's life. Verse 16 is so clear. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John is saying, Remember Jesus, who laid his, laid his life down, who died for us? That is how we are to live our lives. That's our example. So how well are you, are you, do, or how well are you doing at, at laying down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And not just the ones that you would say are friends. And then how are you doing this? What does that look like? Well, again, John is not pulling this, this uh, teaching out of midair. These are Jesus' own words in John 15 again. Jesus says, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. And this is the standard. This is the standard for our life together. No less than this. And our life together makes a difference to the world around us because it begins to turn the lights on for the weary traveler searching for hospitality. The weary traveler searching for a place of love or uh, for a place of peace. Not more of the world. That is not what what unbelievers are coming into the church to look for. They are not coming to look for more of the world. They don't need a concert on Sunday. They don't need a smoke show. They don't need uh, people hanging from the ceilings and coming flying in on a Sunday morning. They need the word. And that's it. And then finally, in verses 19 through 24, John tells us, One more thing about this divine love. That divine love assures us of our faith. Look at verses 19 through 24. John says, By this we we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So if you haven't noticed this already, sort of like an a underlying theme or underlying thread throughout uh, 1 John is, uh, is assurance. Assurance is this massive theme of John's letter. He wants to assure his readers of who they are in Christ, that they have been saved by Christ, that they are, that they are kept in Christ. 
And so verse 19 sets the stage for this final part of our text this morning with this key phrase that John continues to use. By this we shall know. By this we shall know. And so the this being whether or not we we love only in word or whether we love in deed and truth. So John is saying, does, does what we say, if we are saying we love other people, does it translate, or are we saying we love God, does it translate into our life? Does that love that we say that we have for the Father, does that overflow into our lives? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the very famous chapter on love, if it doesn't, we are nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If this type of love is supposed to bring assurance, what does it look like, and how do I know I'm doing this well? So one commentator answers this question this way. They will know they belong to the truth when their love finds practical expression in helping those in need. Pretty simple. And just as an aside... I can say that I've been, over the past six years, six and a half years this church has been in existence, that I've been deeply encouraged by this practical expression of love that has been displayed at this church, just to brag on our church a little bit. But, I mean, I've seen this over and over again. Meals, rides, uh, financial assistance, uh, coming alongside one another in suffering, uh, letting people live with you in your house, throwing a wedding reception in your backyard, that's happened, packing uh, just recently 65 people or so, I might be undershooting that number like I always do, into your home to sing Christmas carols. And doing, these are just, this is just scratching the surface of what I have seen this church do and in, in, in being an example of this divine love that has come upon us. Now, before you start believing in yourself, Remember what John is saying about this. He's not saying you're doing a great job, keep it up, keep up the good work, and, and just go, uh, go, uh, go about your day. John is saying this type of living is a declaration of Christ's work in you. And Christ's work in you runs counter to the culture. And he assures us of this work in verse 24 by reminding us that we have the Holy Spirit. And for this reason, the gospel is moving us beyond our own comfort level in ways that that wouldn't happen if we didn't have the Spirit of God living in us. It wouldn't happen if God didn't send Jesus to come uh, and be the Savior uh, for us. And so this, this, this type of love moves us beyond our desire to be safe and secure and comfortable to a place where we are completely trusting in the Lord's work and in the Lord's way. It's an assurance that God is at work amongst his people. So that's why John says in verses 20 through 21, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So if we do have hesitation or doubts that may stop us from showing the hospitality of the gospel, showing this divine love to others, we can trust that God knows way more than we do. He knows how he's going to use that uh, expression of love that you are going to show to others. Verse 
We are only called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and love our God and allow him to do this work amongst us. And Jesus says, how will people know, how will people know the gospel? I mean, of course, we need to verbally go out and share the gospel. We are to do that. But Jesus says one way in particular is they will look at the church and they will observe how you love one another and then they will base their belief and their judgment based on how well you're doing that. That's what Jesus says. They will know you are believers by the love that you have for one another. So that means we have to put to death any unhealthy conflicts that may exist among us now. Maybe you have somebody you need to ask forgiveness from or you need to, you need to forgive somebody here in this church or any of those that may arise in the future and they will come. Those people that annoy you, are, it's, going to, it's going to reach a spot where you cannot take it anymore and you're going to say words that you probably shouldn't say. And you need to, you need to quickly repent and quickly ask for forgiveness. Now, we would not allow this spirit of Cain to dwell amongst us and allow it to fragment us because that's where the enemy is going to strike. We must be a place that exhibits the, the peace and hospitality and love of Christ to all people, this divine love of God. So I heard this illustration a number of years ago. And in the time frame um, of, of, of the illustration is between the 2nd and 16th century. I know that's a, a large span of time there, but, um, but this was during the church, during those, during those times. But, but, but talking about when people would travel during this time, um, they didn't have airplanes or cars with GPS, just in case you don't know your history very well. Uh, none of that existed. So when, when, when people took a journey during this time period, it was not only a long, long journey and very difficult, but it was also very risky, especially when it got dark. You were vulnerable to all sorts of, of thieves and, and robbers who would wait upon the road, waiting for an opportunity to take advantage of some poor and weary travelers coming along a road at night. So as travelers made their way to their destination, and they would see that dusk was beginning to settle and that the sun was continuing to go down on the horizon, they would begin to look for the church steeple. They would begin to look for the church. And they would begin to look for the lights that were on in that particular church as they drew closer to it because they knew, as a weary traveler, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that within the church, they would find a place of rest and a place of safety. That this was going to be a place where they were fed, where they were warmed and taken care of, and a place where they could lay their heads down in peace. And this example this, of, of the church during this, this time is the exact countercultural reality we are called to as the church in this place. That in order to be a place that is hospitable to the weary traveler, we must receive this divine love from God, participate in this divine love with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and extend it to a watching world in desperate need of it. Amen. Let's pray.
God, I pray that we would be a people who are constantly being changed by your divine love that you have shown us in Christ. And in turn, we would show this divine love to others here in this place amongst our brothers and sisters, but also to a watching world. I pray that you would keep us from the spirit of Cain, the spirit of the Antichrist, that we would love each other as Christ loved us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.